Welcome to the City Collective Podcast. We believe we are better together and exist to create space for everyone to discover life in Jesus. We hope that you encounter the heart of God and are challenged and inspired in your relationship with Christ. So I'm just going to quickly read um, our scripture for today, and I believe it's Matthew 6, uh, starting at verse 9. This then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Thank you, sir. Wonderful. I think you'll notice that over uh, the course of this series, we're not uh, reading anything else but the Lord's Prayer, which is where we find ourselves for this opening of the fall. In, in 1999, two cognitive psychologists conducted an experiment now widely called as the invisible gorilla test. Uh, people watching a video of a basketball team were asked to count the number of times that a ball was passed between players. Partway through the video, a person in a gorilla suit would walk out through the team and make a ruckus and start pounding their chest as players continue to pass the ball. And about half of those who were watching during this test, during this video, were so focused on counting the passes that they never noticed the gorilla. Uh, The study concluded this, that our minds are wired to see what we expect to see and often miss what we do not intend to encounter. In a culture that holds busyness as a virtue and individual success as kind of the ultimate paradigm, it's not shocking to see how our awareness of what God is up to is difficult to see play out. We've become so wired to see only the things that we expect and we've missed the gorilla in the room. Now, Jesus may not have used the metaphor of a gorilla, but the Lord's Prayer calls us to see what we often miss. Sky Jathani says that prayer trains us to see God where we might otherwise miss him. Without it, in our busy information overloaded culture, it is very easy to focus on everything other than God. Last week, we Open the Lord's Prayer, focusing on that opening refrain, that first petition, Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. This modeled prayer from Jesus is presented to his disciples who ask him, teach us to pray. And Jesus starts his invitation of what it looks like to pray with this opening of adoration, of intimacy, of of hope that's laid at the foundation. And we need to start that as our focus. We need to have our focus in the right place as we begin to pray. Every day, I know I can find myself losing my attention, losing my very being in the things that I'm doing, in work, in family, and in, in maybe the going on of global disasters or, or, or local initiatives. And the things that we do consume all that we are. And so to pray... And to open it with that that desire to point to where God is. To to say that we adore you. 
even when we don't, is a condition. It is a posture that Jesus invites us to take. But within all that chaos, let's be honest, it can often feel like God isn't around. But according to Jesus, that isn't the case. Much like our gorilla, God may in fact be making plenty of noise in the things around us, but we are missing it because we don't intend to actually encounter him. We're looking for the things that we can do, that we can control, that we can give name to. And we have stopped paying attention to the ways in which God is around us and moving. We're not expecting him and we're certainly not looking for him. So for some of us this morning, the first step in prayer needs to simply be take your eye off of what is consuming all of your attention just long enough to perhaps see what God is doing. Because history shows us that there is a beauty, there's a bevy of beautiful things that has taken place because of the goodness of God. We've seen breakthroughs in medicine, establishment of social systems for, for the poor and underprivileged, virtues like forgiveness and kindness and honesty have suddenly become more commonplace within our culture. And we've seen technology take off and global uh, initiatives of unity start to become more normal amongst all that we do. And it's wonderful and it's beautiful and it's dramatically different than even a hundred years ago. And simultaneously, we don't have to look really far to see the brokenness, the pain, the hurt, and the loss that is taking place all around us. And I would say more often than not, the, the rampant nature of that devastation overwhelms our attention. And it leaves us often getting to this place of, is it even worth trying to make it better? There's this, there's this modern, often atheistic mindset that would lead us to believe that there is no purpose in the beginning and there's no purpose in the end. So here in the middle, I'm just going to worry about me. Or it's, it's looked at the, the way that history has played out and it's said that there is a cyclical nature to some of the things that we see taking place. So why am I even trying to interrupt something that is caught in a cycle regardless? And so we're left in this space of do I even do anything with the desire to see it be better. Jesus looked at history, looked at the way in which the world was forming in a different manner. Jesus contended that God was doing something. He wanted us to have that expectation to see what is taking place around us. In fact, the second petition references the very thing that God is progressing towards. There is a purpose in the end. There is a goal that we're moving towards, and he calls it the kingdom of God. In that second petition, he says, your kingdom come, your will be done here on earth as it is in heaven. Now, if you're hearing that phrase and it doesn't really uh, capture your imagination in any particular way, you're not alone. Or maybe it's, it's garnering confusion more, more likely. 
even the followers of Jesus that would have been in a culture and a time and place that would have been more familiar with the ideas of kings and kingdoms found this language of kingdom to be a little bit confusing, a little bit different to wrap their heads around. Most of them, most of the disciples that heard what Jesus was saying were pretty sure that he was referring to an earthly empire that he was going to establish. That the people of Israel were so weary and burdened down by the oppressive nature of the Roman Empire that they were convinced that Jesus, the, the one who had come, this Messiah was the great redeemer, a new king who by supernatural force would overthrow the empire. And in fact, we believe and they would come to believe that he did just in not the way they expected Daryl Johnson, he says that the kingdom of God refers to, to the dynamic reality of God acting as the king. The Hebrew prophets longed for the day when God would finally impose and establish his kingly rule over the entire world. And they longed for the day when God would intervene once and for all and rule without rival. A new king, a new kingdom had come, just not in the way they had expected. And that was perhaps their experience then, fast forward to today, and I don't think we are thinking of a kingdom that's suddenly going to come and usurp the U.S. government or Chinese government or Justin Trudeau anytime soon. We're not, we're not running in that kind of language or that kind of thought. In many ways, the idea of kingdom has become a purely spiritual one, a purely heavenly one, one that's beyond us. It's, it's in this place, this plane that's outside of our existence. And even the language of kingdoms is outside of our frameworks and our impression is one that's beyond. But in, in the words of N.T. Wright, the second main petition in the Lord's Prayer, thy kingdom come, it rules out any idea that the kingdom of God is purely a heavenly reality. When Jesus uttered that simple request to his father in his prayer, your kingdom come, he was not only thinking of the messianic kingdom, the one that was going to come and bring new life into the world, that was going to bring salvation to humanity, but he was also inviting this idea of God taking kingship, this ongoing change in the world that has been created. Jesus had announced that the kingdom of God was at hand. He said that the kingdom had arrived with him. And it was breaking into the history of the world and it was going to do so through him. And in modeling prayer in this way, he was saying this to his disciples. He was saying, God is up to something in the world. And we are invited to share in it. To share both in the longing for all the things that we see to be broken to be made well. And also in the working out of it. We are so guilty of making so many aspects of our spiritual lives black and white. I'm going to pray and I'm going to pray hopefully towards something. I'm going to do something and that's all I'm going to be focused on. But there's this beautiful nuance within our faith that invites us to be both and, to be in all things and for all things, to have prayers for people that are experiencing heartbreak and then to do something alongside it. The kingdom of God is at hand. Christ that lives within us came into the world in interrupted history, changed it for the better, and invites us to be part of the process of seeing that take place in the here and now. 
Jesus came to establish the kingdom of God as a radical alternative to all the versions of the kingdoms of this world. And when we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done, we are saying this. We're saying that we need a new king to sit on the thrones of this world and on the thrones of our hearts. This is the declaration. And in many ways, I would contend that the combination of the two ideas, your kingdom come, your will be done. If we were to simply say your kingdom come, it almost makes it macro, this wide expressive thing. I hope the world gets better. But when we say your will be done, it suddenly becomes personal. It suddenly becomes something that is taking place within me that I am extremely hesitant to give up. This morning, we're going to explore a few ideas to, in the context of this petition. Ref redefine power, battles of the will, and kingdom prayers. First one is redefine power. Uh, marriage has, has taught me many things. Uh, about myself, about relationships, about how to communicate. Maybe that's the number one. And it's been fascinating to see how there are so many things that I thought I knew that I really didn't know. And I'm not saying that in a really deep way. Uh, there are a number of things like chores and usage of like appliances and stuff at home that I thought I knew what I was doing. And I soon discovered I had no idea what I was doing uh, pretty early within marriage itself. And I'm not saying that in a way that I want you to assume like I've never done those things before. I have, I've done those things before. But the way in which they're done was very quickly corrected for me. The, 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 the number of things included some odd ones I had no idea. For example, like the tray at the bottom of uh, an oven isn't just for storage, you actually warm stuff in it. Who knew? Um, it's, it's news to me. Uh, metal and nonstick pans, that's a hard no. Don't do that. Uh, the art of loading a dishwasher, it is an art, apparently. It's not haphazard chaos that I can just toss it in there. It's going to get clean regardless. That's what I think, at least. Uh, and then the versatility of a potato peeler. It does more than you think. So all these different things. All these different things. And, and, and here, here's the idea. Just because we have done something one way doesn't mean that it is the right way. And this is applied to even big ideas like power. Power and the way in which kingdoms of this world have wielded it has become, it has become accepted that this is just how it is. Power, especially power that is from God, is meant for good. But I would say that our default association of the word, in fact, is one of abuse and misuse. It doesn't hold a positive connotation. You've probably heard someone say at some point, well, that's just the way it is, perhaps in regards to politics or government or even just power structures within our smaller spaces. That's just the way it is. It might be bad, but that's just the way it is. It might make me feel like I'm oppressed, but that's just the way it is. I don't really see a way in which we can change it because that's just the way it is. And we have thought of the word power to simply mean that which is abusive or misused. But in this prayer, 
When Jesus says, your kingdom come, he's speaking of authority and power being given to God. And he's trying to redefine what power even means for us. Just because we have done something one way or felt it is one way does not mean it is the right way. As we talk about the kingdom of God, it's impossible to miss the ways in which Jesus orients his life around power. The way that he changes the narrative so dramatically. He joins a people that are often ostracized and shunned. And he lives into this idea of subverting the kingdoms of this world. Of changing the narrative of how we actually interact with them. And how power is defined. His throne wasn't made of gold. It was, made, it was, it was a cross. His crown wasn't an olive branch like Caesar's. It was thorns. He didn't ride a war horse into Jerusalem. He rode a donkey. He didn't demand servants wash his feet, but he washed those, the feet of those that he came to serve. He didn't rule with an iron fist, but with tears and with grace. So I look at Jesus as the one who actually embodies the kingdom that he's saying, come. Everything that Jesus does is the opposite of the way of the world. And it's the opposite of our understanding of power. He says that the last shall be first. He says that the lowly are lifted up and the lofty are lowered down. When you read the Gospels, Jesus' miracles and signs demonstrate that when the kingdom of God breaks into a, a community, breaks into a, a culture or a world, it gives us a picture of what God's kingdom is like. We look at Jesus' ministry. He heals the blind and deaf. He, he delivers people from demonic oppression. He forgives sins. He exercises authority over the natural world. And these are all signs of God's kingdom that they are meant to continue today. This is a redefining of power for us. Because if we don't have a healthy definition of power, we're most certainly not going to give over the throne in which we believe power is held. Power has to be thought of in the, through the lens and through the life of Jesus. Because Jesus came to establish the kingdom of God as a radical alternative. When the kingdom of God is manifested, when the kingdom of God comes to life, it looks like Jesus. And, and perhaps you, you might say to yourself, well, we've gotten it right at certain times. Western nations hold this, this ideal that we are Christian nations or we've, we've done things as a, from a Christian platform. But there was nothing distinctively Christ-like about the way in which this land was discovered, conquered, or governed in the early years. In fact, the, the regions were discovered and conquered in a rather, rather typical kingdom of the world approach. The fact that it was largely done under the banner of Christ doesn't somehow make it more Christian. To simply say that it is the kingdom of God and doesn't look like the kingdom of God, that doesn't work. They're two very different things. When followers are Je of Jesus aren't careful to distinguish the kingdom of God from their own. When we say, I am a Christian, I am a follower of Jesus... And we're simply living out our own kingdom. It doesn't just make it suddenly God's kingdom. When followers of Jesus aren't careful to distinguish the kingdom of God from their own, we end up 
Christianizing aspects of culture and our lifestyles that we ought to be revolting against. This is why power needs to be redefined because it needs to belong to the right person in the right seat. And that leads us to that second idea. So if redefined power is taking place in your kingdom come, your will be done, we kind of want to rush past because it feels way more personal. There's this battle of, battles of the will that take place. And this is easier said than done because often the greatest battle in seeing God's kingdom come is saying, my will not be done. We don't want to say that. To, to say your will be done is a submission of our will. And, and we live in this, this time, in this era where everything that we would seemingly desire is at our fingertips. So therefore, my will can be accomplished. Why would I not pursue it? Why would I not make that my, my fourth most thought and idea and pursuit in life? There is a daily battle of wills taking place. And here's the thing, acknowledgement of God as king is not the submission of our will. And I mean it like this. To simply say that God is king in the world is very different than submitting my will so that my actions are actually under his authority. Don't get me wrong. We are invited to bring our desires to God. Prayer is not meant to simply be an empty practice of simply saying words. We are invited to ask God for things, even within this prayer. But the place in which Jesus wants us to start is first worship, outward focus, and submission. The first two can sometimes feel more attainable, especially than submission. But as we live in an era where much of what we have is readily available, sub submission, it, the battle of our wills is, is constant and it feels overwhelming. Even, at, even with Mia being, she's 15 months now, th there's a battle of wills that are beginning to take place. And at this point, my will feels a little stronger. I can stick in it a little longer. She gets more distracted than I do. But you can, but you can sense it. Even, even those little moments in relationship with others. And can you imagine even more so on a grand scale with God? When the, when the stakes feel so high about what I do and what my purpose is and how I actually live out what it is to be a, a, a human in this world, I certainly have a will of what I think that should look like. And in this prayer, Jesus is saying, when you begin, adore the Father. Turn your heart upward. Acknowledge the kingdom. Come alongside mission. But to do any of that... Your will be done, not mine. It's, it's a counter-narrative to what we have been conditioned to think. And it's not just the case for us. It's been the case throughout history. The idea of the battle of wills is not isolated to a modern context. It was taking place throughout the Old Testament as well. Israel was a benefactor of freedom that came from a good God. God freed them in the Exodus story. And they were able to not just find freedom, but to find authority and to situate themselves and build something that was meaningful for them as a people. 
the irony of it is that they very much recognized that God was the king. But as time went on, their submission to his will began to become convoluted and distracted. From the point of the exodus, so we have the freedom from Egypt that takes place, the journey through the desert, the entrance into the promised land, and then there is the establishments of the kingdoms of Israel. They, they make this ask of God. We want a king like the surrounding countries. God was the, the unquestioned king. Then they ask, we want a, a physical being. We want, we want a, someone to sit on that throne within our kingdom. And then things began to change slowly. And you fast forward a couple of generations and you get to the story of Solomon, David's son. And there's plenty about Solomon's story which is good and celebratory. In fact, Chronicles depicts his life pretty positively. But there is some who might look at that story and, and think to themselves, well, Solomon's, Solomon's life is maybe an echo of, of Moses. He was part of the one leading his people into the promised land, into something better, particularly because he was building the temple, like Moses built the temple. There's a lot of connections that people have made throughout time. But history shows us that Moses is not the main character of the Exodus story that Solomon resembles. Arguably, Solomon actually comes to more resemble Pharaoh. In 2 Chronicles 8.11 and 1 Kings 3.1, Solomon makes an allegiance with Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, by marrying his daughter. And then he goes on to gather horses and chariots for himself, and he even imports them from Egypt at a really great cost. And, and the manner of, of power that he, he decides to yield is not reflective of the kingdom of God, but was actually more reflective of the kingdom of Egypt. And the irony of that was that was the very kingdom from which they were freed. In, in, in the narrative of kings, this seems to be the turning point after which we see that Solomon's heart departed from, from God. And it, and it didn't just end in this, this marriage because what you actually see take place is that Solomon, for the first time within the history of Israel, introduced the idea of enslaved labor. In order to build the temple, he needed to, to bring on 30,000 Israelites as slave labor in order to build the temple. And that was in addition to 70,000 burden bearers, 80,000 stone cutters, and 3,300 officers who ruled over the workers. Significantly, those enslaved workers didn't just build the temple, but they built his house as well. There's one line that connects Pharaoh with Solomon. It says that there was this idea of store cities in 1 Kings 9.19 that had to be established. And these were cities, these places for the resources that he had. And the only other place in the Bible in which it is mentioned about this idea of store cities being established was in the practice of Pharaoh. Something happened in the will of Israel. They were no longer submitting their will to God. They said, my will be done. And in that journey, their hearts began to depart from God. And their actions began to look like, from, look like the very kingdoms that they were freed from. We supplant the throne of our hearts when, we, when our will supersedes that of God's. 
when our will is what leads our life, we often build the very kingdoms from which God has set us free. And this is the tragic nature of history kind of repeating itself, whether it's within families, within societies, within cultures. We look at history and we say it just repeats itself, but it repeats itself because the action of my will taking the lead is what's taking place. That's why this sits in the prayer. My, your will be done. This prayer, this part of the prayer is about releasing control. I wonder for us this morning, what are you wrestling to hold on to control-wise? Maybe it's something that you've never released to God. Or you find yourself grabbing back onto every time that you feel like things get a little bit out of sorts. That has become your safety vest. That has become the thing that you grab onto to find survival instead of a good God that holds you closely. Releasing our own control is asking for God's very kingdom to be in our midst. Am I willing to relinquish the throne of my heart to live into the kingdom of God throughout my life? And this prayer, your kingdom come, your will be done, it's a kingdom prayer. But a kingdom prayer isn't just a personal prayer. It doesn't just stay with our hearts. Jesus' first followers believed that God's kingdom had come and his will had been done. Jesus' first followers, they think that for a moment that the kingdom of God might not simply be new religious advice, might not be improved spirituality, a better code, an elevated thought process. They held to a stronger and more dangerous claim. They believed that in the unique life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, all of reality had turned a corner from darkness to light. Of course they face this question that we all do. If the kingdom is here, why is there still injustice in the world? Why is there still hunger? Why is there still guilt? Why is there still evil? And they didn't dodge this question. In fact, they engaged with it. They didn't escape and say, oh, we didn't mean to say that. We were actually just talking about a spiritual existence in which God is doing good things in my mind and the world will eventually catch up. No, they engaged with it practically and physically because kingdom prayers don't just leave us to think inside they lead us to doing something on the outside. They lead us to action. They went on praying and living the Lord's Prayer. And they would tell us, they would tell you and I, do the same. It's this this theological idea of now and not yet. There is the kingdom of God that has broken into history that invites us into this space of experiencing God's kingdom here and now. But we know that all has taken place, that all that will take place has not taken place yet. There is more to come. There is a new kingdom to be established. So we wait with bated breath. We wait with, with a hope and with an intention for that time to come while simultaneously saying, I believe that the one who lives within me is the kingdom that's at hand. So I'm going to live towards the kingdom that he invites me into. They faced the questions that we all think head on with action, not just with reflection. Not just with contemplation, but with real purpose. 
God is the king and he rules. But there is work for us to be doing as his conduits here and now. And this is good news for us. That there is a king that has come. When the scriptures talk about good news all throughout the Hebrew text, whenever good news is sent out, it is often associated with the arrival of a king. It is often associated with a new ruler who is coming into place. And when a new ruler comes into place, the place changes. If someone new comes onto the throne of a region, the place changes. And that is the case for us. The very fabric of our society has begun to change and it needs to change. Whenever you find Jesus talking about the kingdom of God, it is transforming the world. It's not language that's head in the sky theology. It is transforming the world. And he talked about real things, unjust judges, widows and orphans, day laborers and vineyard workers. The kingdom is promising life after death, sure, but it also wants us to find life before death. I want you to think of it this way. Worship team, you can join me at the front. Jesus is this, is this medical genius. I've, uh, this example comes from N.T. Wright. Je- Jesus is this medical genius who discovered penicillin. And you and I, as followers, have been cured by this medicine and invited to be doctors. Applying it to those who need it. Jesus is this musical genius who wrote the greatest composition of all time. And we are musicians captivated by the composition ourselves. Who now are invited to perform it before the world. The kingdom did indeed come with Jesus. But it will fully come when the world is healed. When the whole of creation finally joins in song. But it must be Jesus' medicine. It must be Jesus' music. And the only way to be sure that we are going in that direction is to pray. I cannot do it on my own strength. I cannot do it in my own will. This is a prayer that's not just meant to be something personal held to ourselves. This is a controversial, transformative prayer that can be a fuel for action and transformation. Or it can become a place that we choose to hide. It can be in a place that maybe we can excuse inaction as spirituality. Perhaps you've maybe heard someone say, oh, I'm praying for you. Or sometimes that's all that they can do. Or I'm thinking about you. And it's a nice thought. Or it's nice prompts. But it's as if we need to be more than just nice thoughts or nice prayers if we're praying these kingdom prayers. Think of it this way. If, if there is a ramp that is not working or outside that we don't have for someone that needs wheelchair access. Don't pray, God, would you just build a ramp? Real prayer, real honest, dedicated prayer that is seeking the heart of God, that says your kingdom come, your will be done, convicts our hearts to do something. To go build the ramp. To have real action come out of our prayers. We say, God, move a mountain, and he puts a shovel in our hands. Part of this mystery and this whole story is that God wants us to participate. Because if we pray this way, we must be prepared to live this way. This is where we go as a church. You should be just as tired and sick of hollow prayers 
as I am. Prayers that just feel like nice thoughts that don't feel like they do anything. And then we work it all out and we say, well, it's, my prayer didn't accomplish anything. God must not hear me. And God is saying, look at the things I have placed around you to do something about the very thing that you're praying for. There are most definitely things that we bring to God and we need to be surrendered and we don't know how to act. But there are plenty of things that we bring to God that he's inviting us to take action on. Because he's redefined power. He's in the battle for our will. And he's inviting us to pray kingdom prayers. To take real action towards real change in our real world. If we pray this way, we must be prepared to live this way. This is a prayer of subversion and conversion. It is the way that we sign on for the work of the kingdom. It's a way that we take the medicine ourselves. It's the way that we hear the music. It's the way that we share it with those around us. Do you see the gorilla in the room? Do you see the one trying to grab your attention? That wants more for your life, more for your relationship with him than you are currently experiencing? Maybe you're so caught up in looking at the, the ways in which you're praying, the, the 10 minutes in the morning, the 10 minutes at night, and you can just only see that, and you're not seeing the way that God is pounding his chest trying to get your attention during the day. Look at the invitation towards your coworker that you could be a demonstration of the kingdom of kindness that they have not seen for years. Look at the demonstration of generosity that you're invited to do that will come as a point of sacrifice that is the kingdom bringing new life into the world. Do we see the gorilla in the room and are we actually going to pick up our heads and pay attention? Because when we pray that prayer, your kingdom come, your will be done, something needs to happen. We need to be prepared to live that way. We are saying, God, I pray that your kingdom would advance here on the earth, begin it in my heart, lead me in helping to make it a reality. So this morning, my invitation to you, consider where that prayer might actually begin to make change in your life. When you pray, your kingdom come, your will be done. How is your will actually surrendering to the will of God? Are you able to give the throne of your heart to the one who will hold it with generosity and grace and power towards the ways of the kingdom that our world needs? Whose will are you praying be done? Would you bow your heads with me as we pray? Father, we're so grateful for the way in which you give yourself fully to us. That is beyond our understanding or our, our deservedness, the way in which you run after us, the way that you hold us. We glorify you in that. And here as a church, as we begin this ministry year together, we pray this prayer, your kingdom come, your will be done here in Langley as it is in heaven. And may it begin in us. May the thrones of our hearts be occupied by the one 
who shows us the way of the kingdom in all that Jesus has done. I pray that as we as we reflect on what sits in our, on the thrones of our hearts, that if we need to be giving up control, that you would give us courage. That you'd bring us into a conversation and community that might make us feel like we're not alone. And if control is the, is the burden that we're carrying, I pray that you would just reveal yourself to be one who offers us real freedom. I pray that we as a church would become a people of prayer, not just in the words that we say, but in the lives that we live. That prayer would begin to do something with us. Not just words out of routine, but declarations of purpose, of mission, of saying your kingdom come here in Langley as it is in heaven. We offer ourselves to you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to today's message. We hope it encouraged and blessed you in your walk with our Lord Jesus Christ. To keep up with City Collective, make sure to check us out on Instagram and Facebook at City Collective Church. Have a great week.